One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello and welcome to the Tennis Podcast, episode 40. And we've gone from the outskirts of the Queen's Club next to the practice court. And now we're sitting in the pub, Catherine, after work. This is this is the place to record a tennis podcast, isn't it? I know. How has it taken us till episode 40 to, to figure out this system? I don't know. And why has our, why has our drink uh, consumption become ever more uh, strong? And, uh, and what, what have you got in that? It's a clear drink, but it looks very strong. No, it's, it's actually water, isn't it? You are drinking water, so this is going to be a, a very uninebriated tennis podcast. It, it is a lime and soda, but I, the idea of an inebriated tennis podcast is is one we haven't contemplated before. So that's what we're going to do when we when we decide to close the whole thing down. Christmas special. But we've got tennis to discuss, Catherine, because there's been a, a week of tennis in Madrid. We've got a big interview with David Felgate, former coach of Tim Henman, and he describes the Tim Henman years in some detail, doesn't he? And it's quite a moving interview, isn't it, to think how he went on that journey nine years with Tim Henman in his corner, then it eventually ended that relationship and, and he had to watch him from the commentary box going through that incredible match against Goran Ivanisevic in 2001 and he was in the five live commentary box all the way through it. Yeah, well, I mean, you'll, you'll hear when you hear the interview. It's, it's really interesting for me hearing him speak so candidly about the Henman years because I remember, you know, during those years I wasn't working in tennis, I was... I was still a wee wee schoolgirl, um, but from the outside, um, I, I suppose I, I suppose I thought he. I, sp- I suppose I thought f- from the outside and not having any insider insight into it, it seemed as if David Felgate wasn't or almost compounded Tim's sort of more negative qualities, a slight drippiness, you know, a slight... As I say, my, my opinions have completely changed since having more of a, an insight into things. But, um, yeah, from the outside, I was almost rooting for Tim to, to dare I say it, make the break from Felgate. And, and, um, and I think it was quite interesting seeing... I don't know how history looks back on it, really, whether that was a positive thing. I mean, he had the Stefanki, Stefanki era, which was... I mean, he fiddled with his serve a bit, didn't he? And Ended up hurting his shoulder, didn't he? Ended, exactly. So, I mean, although he had a fair bit of results success, I think it was... I, I don't think he would look back on that. I don't think he would regret employing Stefanki, but I also don't think it was the, the massively successful partnership that that Stefanki's had with some other people. And then, obviously, I think Anna Cohn was an excellent partnership for him. So I think, you know, nine years, as Felgate says in the interviews, it's a long time to be with someone, isn't it? I mean, there aren't many coaching relationships these days that last last anywhere near that long. The other thing that David says in the interview, as you'll hear, is that Tim, he had to try out different things. He had to ensure that no stone was left and turned. It's a little bit like how Andy Murray started working with Ivan Mendel and he's having a perfectly successful career. But at some point, you've got to make the decision. Do you do you roll the dice again or not? And, and some of them worked, some of them didn't. But I think that, you know, everybody had their opinion about David Felgate and Tim Hemmond's relationship back then. David knows that. Um, some of them, you know, you could say are right. Some of them you could say are wrong. Some of them, you know, I just don't think there necessarily is a, a, a quantifiable conclusion to come from it all but I mean what you can't argue with is the success they had overall together that David helped Tim come through from teenage years into a very successful career and they certainly they certainly did a good job together I mean number of semi-finals almost almost beat Sampras wasn't far away at all um, and I mean you know I, I think it's uh, 
it's certainly shown in David's other coaching assignments since then that he can have a, a very positive effect on players. And he mentioned Xavier Melisse in the interview. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I've said it before. I bang this drum repeatedly to to people that accuse Henman of you know being being a failure or whatever. Tim Henman overachieved in his career. I mean, all, something that David discusses in the interview, doesn't it? Quite, and and I don't think certainly not it's sort of the the lay person British public who all they know is that he didn't win Wimbledon. I don't think many people appreciate that about him. You know, talent wise, he absolutely maxed out, and I think that's why now he's such a. Uh, He's comfortable in his own skin, isn't he? he? He has no regrets. He has no feelings of, oh, you know, I, I could have been, I could have done this. Or and, and certain amount of credit for that has to go to the coach, and certainly to 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 the coach he had from a very young age. You know, he had the he broke his arm, didn't he, quite early on in his career. I think he and broke it, his leg, didn't he, as well? Do you remember? In, in, in I think maybe in. When he was about eighteen. Yeah, he did. I, I think, think I think he broke his leg even. Twice, and I he think. was a very late bloomer as a result of that. Um, and and again, I think you know the coaching relationship there plays a major part in. Um, you know, he probably saw people that were on a par with him in juniors just suddenly race ahead because that's an age at which you you do tend to have a major surge and make the breakthrough into seniors. And and he would have been sat on the sidelines for a long time. And David stuck with him. They stuck together and. And uh, it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we heard from David talking about uh, Donna Vekic, his uh, latest uh, student, last year's, last week's tennis podcast, and she's the youngest player inside the top 100. He's certainly a, a man I think I'd want in my corner if I was coming through at that sort of age. I think he definitely knows how to bring a player through from a young age into the professional ranks. We'll hear more from David Felgate a little later in the tennis podcast, episode 40, but... What about on court this week, Catherine? This time last week, we were looking ahead. That night it was going to be Djokovic against Grigor Dimitrov. And you said, Djokovic is the favourite, but Grigor has a chance. And Grigor won. He had a chance, didn't he? He had a big chance. Yeah, I'm not saying I I foresaw the whole... uh, You did. I've always said you were soothsayer, Catherine Whittaker. But I definitely saw that as one of the more likely scenarios and I think we discussed this at the time what was I mean everything I'm about to say is completely cancelled out by the fact that he went on to lose to Vavrinka in the next yeah, round but, but it was very close let's just, let's very just close. talk he about good, he did a good job in that match even and he was pushing Vavrinka he was a set up he was a break I think he was he was three all with break points he was pushing Vavrinka he did I, I mean although on paper it looks like a big win followed by a tame loss as as has been the pattern of his career so far, I, I do think there was a bit of a shift, and it wasn't quite the the limp follow up um, performance that, that we've seen from him before after he's had big success. Also I, shows how tough Vavrinka is because in that third set, six one, as soon as he got his nose level, even just on level terms, he was just irresistible in the third set. And he's a tough guy, Vavrinka, isn't he? You wouldn't want to annoy him. I think it toughens you up being number two to Roger Federer. No, I, I think that must be quite a uh, a heartbreaking. Uh, I mean, I think he's totally fine with it and deals with it bril- brilliantly. But um, I think that probably probably does thicken your skin and toughen you up a bit. Consistently being in the shadows of somebody and um, yeah, it, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's to his credit, not to uh, not to Dimitrov's deficit, I suppose, that that much that much went the way that it did and interestingly enough as well uh, we've just started row and first round Dimitrov has beaten Marcus Bagdatis in straight sets 6-3, 6-4 you know th- that to me is the biggest sign I know we speak a lot about this guy because he's our favourite player because we love watching him play but when you're actually looking at signs of is somebody going to make the next step and be a contender in the top 20 and eventually in the top 10, which we both think he will be? It's having a big result and then coming out the next week and being a professional and posting another straight sets win over somebody you should beat. But the thing is, I mean, yeah, we do talk about him a lot, but who else is there on the horizon that, re- I mean, yes, somebody could come from nowhere. I, I accept that. But who is there at the moment on the horizon that looks like they could be a... A number one or a Grand Slam champion. Well, there's other promising players, aren't there? Yeah, you know, Milos Raonic he's is not exciting. A one. He, he, I, I'm not saying Dimitrov is a definite number one. He has it in him. Milos Raonic is never going to be world number one. Oh, I don't know about that. No. Actually, he's he could, never going to be world number one. David, on, uh, I've, he's not. Yeah, he can cause players trouble. He, he might. He might get into the top five. I'm not ruling that out. Grand Slam. He beat Andy Murray on clay. Yeah, he's got some results in him. He's not a world number one though. 
Dimitrov, if if he does things right, he could be a world number one. I don't think there's I don't think there's anyone else out there that I see that in. That's why there's so much hype around him. What about Bernard Tomic? He's got loads of talents. Admittedly, his dad's um, got some problems as well, there hasn't he? Caused a few issues. Uh, he's he's number two in the uh, on the race that's happening on the horizon that I'm that I'm uh, depicting here. He's number two in it. Uh, I still don't think he has quite as much talent as Dimitrov, but he's, there's no doubt he's very talented. It's a different and kind has... of talent, isn't it? It's it's a more Murray-esque type of talent, whereas yeah. Dimitrov is more, as we've always talked about, Federer-esque. Yeah, that's probably quite a good analogy, but um, yeah, how much can we say about his... I mean, I'm sure everybody knows about the the, <laughs> the troubles he's facing off the Well, court. that's the other big difference is that Andy Murray similar kind of talent but Murray has completely sorted his own professionalism out and, and he, he's, he's the ultimate and, and professional in many ways it didn't take him long to do that did it, it did, he's a smart guy it didn't take him long to figure out what he needed to do to, to, be, to be a true professional tennis player you know that year at Queen's and he had the run at Wimbledon and, and he was cramping against Nalbandian he figured it out pretty quickly what was required of him that's the interesting thing about Dimitrov for me is the fact that even Given the sideshow that is around him at the moment, the fact that he appears to be going out with Maria Sharapova and he was pictured, uh, in the words of Neil Harmon, canoodling with uh, Maria Sharapova Neil, on the street. Don't ever use the word canoodling well, again. That's, that that you know, what, how you. on earth would you describe it? The Daily Mail pictures that were shown the next day with them arm I, in arm. I think the rule is I wouldn't describe it. I think. Okay, there we are. Uh, well, I think you're absolutely right, Neil. That's basically what was happening. But the fact oh. is that uh, there's a lot of attention around Grigor Dimitrov just at the moment understandably for all these different reasons but he actually seems to be increasing his professionalism not being distracted it appears to me and I'm sure this coaching setup that he's now part of with the good to great academy in Sweden which is run by players like Mikhail Tilström who is who's basically seems to be the point person now for Grigor Dimitrov. Magnus Norman's had some impact as well during Miami they were together, albeit Norman's casting his spell over Stanislav Vavrinka now and has got him to the final in Madrid. And there's Nicholas Kulti part of that. These are players that have been there, done it quite recently. Grigor Dimitrov can relate to them and they're sorting him out. Yeah, quite. I think that's very well put. And I, I think I remember... Um I've been chat with Peter McNamara, who who coached Grigor through. I think they split up a year or so ago. Coached him for a couple of years during very formative years, and he's got a lot of time for him as a as a person. And he always saw him blossoming. But I, you know, I remember him talking about his role as as much of a sort of second father figure in helping him to become a man, as much as it was helping him to become as good a tennis player as as he can be. And and obviously, he's he's continued further down that path since splitting with um, with Peter McNamara. But definitely, it's all about the professionalism and and um, God. How can you say becoming a man without being ridiculously patronising? I don't think there's a way. I mean, but you know, we were talking about the times that players come of age, and and I always remember. Roger Federer's career very closely because I was on the ATP circuit when he was 16 and it took him a while it took him five years to go from ATP debut to Grand Slam champion and people tend to forget that and I remember those years pretty well that he he would flatter to deceive he would have these beautiful arcing ground strokes the movement was perfect he had the touch all these sort of things and he would go and lose in straight sets to to Marcus Hanschk in uh, St. Paulton in 2000 and I'll never forget this because uh, it was on clay in Austria and I was stood on the side of the court next to Sheng Shalkin a, a, a former top 20 player and Roger Federer hit a knee-high volley away for a winner while he was serving to stay in the match. And Schalke turned to me and said, I will never hit a volley as good as that in my entire life. That's and how yet- I feel. Every, every shot I ever yeah, see. Yeah, but this was Shen Shalkin, <laughs> who's a blummin' good player. No offence, Catherine. I'm just saying I know the feeling. Yeah. Uh, but the, the thing is, you know, he's watching this, and we're, we're looking at Federer, who's you know, probably ranked 20, 30 in the world, something like that. And then he goes and throws in two double faults and loses the match. And you watched him and you wondered, actually, is this ever going to happen for Roger Federer? You genuine, we were all genuinely asking those questions. And, and if you looked at the next couple of years of results... 
he was losing to, to players like Yuri Novak in five sets uh, at Grand Slams. He lost to Yevgeny Kafalikov, I remember, in five sets in 2000 at Wimbledon. Yeah, the, two years later. I mean, the, the following year at Wimbledon is when he had his big breakthrough and he beat Sampras at Wimbledon, then lost to Tim Henman in five the next round. But then if you look at the year later, as you said, he came into the French Open and Wimbledon as John McEnroe's official favourite in his column, and he lost in first round in both tournaments. One, as you said, I think was to Lewis Horner, and the second one at Wimbledon Mario was Anchich. against Mario Anchich, So I was on the front row for that one. I'd queued overnight oh, yeah. oh, for the upset. Yeah. So I think the point is, there are, there's a crossroads, and there was a crossroads for Federer, and people tend to forget that. You know, I, I remember him going into slams, and you, and you know, people like me and much greater. Uh, pundits and certainly better pundits and players with better pedigree than I have got were, were saying this guy is the one. He's the one who's going to win slams, and yet he wasn't proving it. And it's easy to think, oh, looking at Federer now, this is the way it was always going to be. But there are plenty of examples of people. Okay, perhaps not people with quite the same supreme talent as Federer, because I don't think anybody ever has had that. But examples of extremely talented individuals who have gone down the other road on the crossroads aren't there and no and question so i mean i think it's easy to think oh yeah you know but it was only a matter of time well i think there are enough examples of people that really have severely under underachieved um to to uh to really um highlight um what an achievement it is and the thing is you know because they earn good money if they're in the top 30 in the world it would be very easy for Roger Federer to thought, well, you know what, I've got a nice car and I've, I've got a pretty good lifestyle here. I'm, I'm a fantastic talent without doing that much. I could just have the life of Riley for the next 10 years and not work too hard, you know, go and have a good time. But he decided he wanted to be the best that he could be. And, and that's, that's all you ask. I don't know, but... Uh, I have no uh, insider knowledge into, you know, I don't know Bernard Tomic, but that is possibly the frame of mind that he might be in at the moment. I don't know, but, you know, you look at his talent, you look at his results. He's developing, isn't he? I mean, it's it's a question that I I think that what you can say is the question mark is still there. And given the turbulence in his life at the moment with the situation going on with his father, you can understand why there might be some issues there why it's more difficult for him than it perhaps is for others Absolutely. but what I would say is the way he knuckled down in Australia won his first title pushed Federer it's there it's in him he can do it what do you mean by knuckled down though I mean it's easy for him in Australia oh, he's got the crowd on. he's got the you know he's a big it's time easy. he's got all the pressure well, you can look at it two ways, can't you? Some people absolutely rise to the occasion. You know, look at last year. He had the first round. He got, he, did he go to the, the fourth round last year? He came back from two sets love down against Vadasco. I think that is easy for him, you know, relatively easy for him. That's where it comes easily when he's got the crowd. That's where it comes easily to him. I don't yeah. think it necessarily comes easily to others. Look at Almanya Maresmo, the way no, she, no, she used to fall not. apart at the French Open. Uh, Sam Stosa really struggles in the spotlight in, in Australia. They perform better in uh, other Grand Slam t- tournaments. I do think you know it's, it's each to their own, but yes, Tomic's problems come. At other slams and other, you know, the, the run-of-the-mill tournament, the grind, the treadmill of the tour. He certainly proved at the Davis Cup recently, didn't he, that he can rise to the occasion again there. So what Rising you're saying is... Rising to the is, occasion is not his problem, you know. And what, what about Laura Robson? Maybe she's going to have a similar issue because there she's beating uh, massive name after massive name. Beat Venus Williams today, beat... Uh, uh, Agnieszka Radvanska last week can they beat the run of the mill opponents that's what we're saying about Dimitrov as well isn't it yeah. can they keep doing it week after week the difference with Dimitrov is he doesn't have a home grand slam but um, yeah, I mean there's going to be more spotlight on Laura than there's ever been at Wimbledon this year um, I mean she's she's not that far away now from being a seeded player I think she will be a seeded player really? when, when she gets um, into those tournaments I think she will be seeded I mean I she's mean, pushing top 30 now not far away when was the last time Britain had a seeded female it's a going long time it's a long, long I mean time. probably would Sam Smith have been seeded I'm not sure so. if she was no, no I don't I think don't she think was so. but certainly Joe Jury Joe was Jury. And, and I think you know a little bit like so that when would we, be the 80s yeah I mean I'm just just a, a quick heads up or a, or a tip of the hat to Joe Jury because we, we spoke a few weeks ago didn't we to Sue Barker and I think we both came away from that thinking how on earth does this woman not get the credit 
she deserves as a tennis player in her own right. Everybody thinks Sue Barker, television presenter, the woman won the French Open. Well, Joe Jury was a semi-finalist at Wimbledon. Joe Jury was a top five player in the world. I think we need to give her a bit of respect as well. How about that? Agreed and done. Right. Okay. There you go, Joe Jury. If you're listening, respect is yours. And she's also part of the uh, the organisation with David Felgate and uh, Alan Jones that is. Uh, uh, trying to build a, a little bit of a, an academy uh, in the United Kingdom and is producing the sort of tennis that Donna Vekic is playing at the moment and I know they have a young Croatian player as well. So great great to see that they are still involved in tennis. They have so much to offer. A couple of other thoughts about uh, Madrid before we hear from David Felgate, Catherine. We had uh, that loss, let's not forget, for Novak Djokovic. Anything to worry about there if you're a Novak Djokovic fan? Uh, possibly his ankle I don't know I mean again we're a bit in the dark um, but you know if that that it was a slightly odd match wasn't it in that he received treatment on the ankle but then it didn't actually seem to be tra- I mean it's hard to attribute his loss to that because um, he didn't actually seem to be struggling with it that much visibly um, in the third set and, and then um, he just looked a bit rusty didn't he don't you think? I mean, it's How different conditions it? in Madrid. That's that's what I would attribute it to. Last year it was blue clay. It's altitude. It does feel different in Madrid yeah. to, to, say, Rome and Monte Carlo. They feel like almost earthy, organic clay court tournaments the same way that the French Open does. Madrid always feels a little bit artificial, almost like you're yeah. playing on the moon. Well, would it Not answer, that I know what it's like answer the question if I just said that he's still my favourite for the French it would kind of answer it, but there, Rafael Nadal, let's not forget, has now won Barcelona and Madrid. Did he have to beat Novak Djokovic at either of those tournaments? Novak Djokovic couldn't even get to the final in Madrid. He'll get to the final of the French. How do you know? I don't know. I'm, I'm predicting. I don't know. I just think. <laughs> Catherine says that it's going to be a Nadal-Djokovic final, correct, Catherine? Well, that depends on the draw, That's doesn't what it? You're but saying, I'm saying that whatever... I, they're going to face If they're in opposite halves of the draw... I think Nadal will beat everybody in the draw. At some point, you think those two are going to face each other in Roland Garros and Djokovic will win. Correct. And Djokovic will win the title. Correct. Okay. I'm going to go really out on a limb and I'm going to say that Rafael Nadal is going to win the title. And I don't know who's going to beat on the way, but he's definitely going to beat everybody before him. But I think that... I don't know what what Martin Del Potro's fitness is like at the moment. I haven't heard his name for a few weeks. I know he played in in Monte Carlo. He didn't do too well there. Um, But I still think he's got a part to play in the whole thing. But I can't see anybody beating Nadal in this sort of fitness. But we did see somebody beating Nadal in this sort of fitness two weeks ago. Not at the French Open. Well, I mean, would he won eight in a row at Monte Carlo. I don't, I don't see. It's best uh, of five sets. Can Novak keep it up for that long against Rafa Nadal on clay? He's, he never has before. Yeah, I think he. Yeah, absolutely. I think he can. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. Well, if you didn't know, uh, we were I mean, the, the only scenario that I, not the only scenario, one other sort of probable scenario, I suppose, which could see Rafa is if somebody else beats Djokovic. And, and the route then becomes clear because I think Rafa can beat everybody else in the draw I would back him to beat anybody else that he comes up against apart from Novak so if somebody else takes care of Djokovic you know if Dimitri, Dimitrov for example can't see that can't, I can't, can't see if, I mean much sets. as we love Grigor Dimitrov he's but, not ready to beat Djokovic over the rest of five if, I agree but for example you know if he came up against Songa in, in absurdly good form or Del Potro as you say then I then I would Pick Rafa to go on and win the Do title. you know that Jonathan Overend, our esteemed colleague on the Five Live team, tennis correspondent for BBC Radio Five Live, said recently on Twitter that he thinks both or one of Stanislas Vavrinka and or Thomas Burdich is going to reach a Grand Slam final this year. One of those two. Uh... Is that that outlandish a prediction? I mean, Thomas Burdich has already reached a Wimbledon final, so I don't think that's that big. In this era, come on, when everybody's fully fit. I know, but still, you wouldn't you wouldn't put your money on it, would you? I mean, what I'm saying is, if that comes off, that's a pretty impressive pick. If both of them do, if both of those things happen, I'll that I'll handle. Well, he didn't say that. He said one of them would hurt. I just don't think that's that crazier prediction. Who's your outsider for the year again? I can't remember. 
My outside, well, hang on. One of them was Petra Martic in the women's game. Who the hell's that? But you moved the goalpost, didn't you? You said, I thought we were talking absolute outsiders, and I picked Dimitrov, and then you went and picked a Grand Slam champion as your outsider. Come on, if anybody breaks the top four, that's an impressive performance from one Martin Del Potter, who's going to reach her final this year, as I've said. And if Thomas Burdich does the same, or Stanislav Wawrinka, as Jonathan Overin said, that's impressive too. You're saying Grigor Dimitrov will do it. Is that what you're saying? No, because when you said pick an outsider, you didn't say somebody that's going to reach the Slam final. I, you, it was, I picked Grigor Dimitrov, somebody that's going to make an impact. You moved the goalposts, David, or you didn't specify where the goalposts were clearly. I moved them at, at a whim because it's my podcast and I do what I like. Uh, <laughs> what do you think uh, Dimitrov's best performance is going to be at a slam this year? Ooh. Um. Wow, okay. I think he. Uh, ooh, okay, a quarter final somewhere. I think it Jonathan reckons quarter finals of Wimbledon, possibly. I, I certainly. Th- I, I could see. Grass that. really should suit him. Yeah, you know, you know for sure. Here's a prediction for you right now Grigor Dimitrov is going to play Roger Federer at Wimbledon, just as Pete Sampras did against Roger Federer in 2001. That's what's going to happen. And wouldn't he love it as well? He would. He, yeah. I think he would love that occasion. Yeah, go on. Yeah. Is, is Federer? I mean, I know that that's all draw dependent. Uh, Federer looked a bit dodgy in Madrid, didn't he? I mean, he's not played. I think something like think fifty he, days or something like that. I that's a long time a out dodgy. there. Yeah, I think he does look a bit dodgy. I mean, dodgy for Roger Federer is still <laughs> outstanding. Um, but it, lost to Kane Ishikori. There's another outsider who's got talent. Yeah, he's got. He's an outsider, and he has talent. I don't think he has a grand slam in him, but um, he can he can have he can make an impact. I love I, watching Kane Shikori. Takes the ball really early, a little bit like uh, Nikolai he, Davidenko he, plays sort of PlayStation type tennis. I like seeing somebody that knows how to make the most of his game, and he certainly is that, isn't he? He's he 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 knows he knows how to maximise what he's got, which is um, well, I just enjoy seeing that. Um, yeah, I'd, yeah, Roger Federer. He does look a bit dodgy. Yeah, I, I agree. It's we haven't seen enough of him to really know how dodgy, but he's susceptible. I he can think. still come out and play amazingly in Rome, though, can't he? Because I mean, he knows what he's doing. He's just going to take a a little bit of time to get into it, isn't he? That's the the, the difference with not playing off many of these tournaments. Yeah, equally, I think he could be susceptible to an early loss, or he could surprise us all and, and reach the final. Yeah, I still okay. think, yeah, he wouldn't win that final if Rafa or Djokovic were in it. But um, you know, we, I don't think we've seen enough to really make strong predictions where Federer is concerned. Andy Murray, what about him? I mean, he he had a, a decent enough run, but he managed to find his way through three sets. I can't remember who it was against, to be honest. But it was very late at night, and he had a, a really Gilles tough three setter. That was it against Gilles Simon, and he was in trouble wasn't he and then he eventually had a, another close match against Thomas Burdich played much better in that match and eventually lost it in straight sets unconvincing on clay as a true I think he I think he plays fine I think he will I think he'll reach the quarterfinals at the French but I think as soon as he comes up against uh, I just don't have the same confidence nearly the same confidence in him I don't, I don't think he's the world number three on clay um, and I think that's fine. You know, there are plenty of great tennis players that have one surface that they're considerably weaker on. I think that's fine. The, the, the only thing that that concerns me about it is that it would be great if he could be seeded second going into Wimbledon, whereas a poor run at the French would, would probably prohibit that. I still think there's something in there on clay for him. I, I just I, He hasn't produced it yet. He doesn't look convincing the way he does on the other surfaces, but I just think he's capable that it... That it I don't, I don't quite know what, what's holding him back. It feels like there's something still. And I suspect it's probably just that last little smidgen of confidence that comes with knowing exactly what he's doing on the surface. But I just think it's there. He's got the ability to, to hurt some of these guys on clay and, and actually get some notable wins and, and get to the semis and maybe even reach the final. I agree it doesn't quite add up. I think he should be better on clay than he is, and I thought Lendl would have more of an impact, would would give him that early days. few percent. It's not that early days, is it? It's his second, well, second two clay court. It's his second clay court. Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Season with Lendl. Um, yeah, I think he could pull it together, but at the moment I, he just doesn't convince me. I think quarterfinals for Murray, unless he gets a favourable draw. But I think as soon as he comes up, you know, he could come up against a Songa, a Del Potro, a Burdic, a Ferrer in the quarterfinals, and I would see him losing any of those he matches. He wouldn't lose to Songa or Clay, no way. In Paris? I think it's possible. Certainly think yeah, it's possible. Do. Might do. And it's going to be interesting. We will watch with interest. Let's just have a quick wi- word about uh, the women's game before we sign off and listen to our David Felgate interview. Another impressive victory for Serena Williams. And again, she's thrashed Maria Sharapova. Yeah, it's, it's looking a bit dodgy for Maria, isn't it? Against, I mean... Uh, against Serena, against let's, Serena, let's be fair. I mean, she's still top two or Do- three in dodgy, the world. But I am constantly astounded that it doesn't seem to dent her confidence in any way, having this... I mean, I, I'm imagining myself in that scenario and knowing that pretty much just not capable of beating this person given that in her mind she probably she's thinking I'm the best player in the world and and knowing that there is somebody that you just cannot beat I can imagine that being sort of crippling mentally a bit like when you play me isn't it Catherine (laughs) we've never played I mean if we ever do it's going to be ugly I know that she deals with it brilliantly, but I'm afraid it's um, the evidence is damning her record against Serena, isn't it? And this is a Serena that lost a six-love set for the first time in how many years? In Madrid? Quite a few. Quite a few years, yeah. I didn't actually see that match, and I thought there had been some kind of mistake when I, when I saw the score afterwards. Um, but no, I mean, Sharapova looked brilliant until she came up against Serena. She did, indeed. But another victory for Serena Williams. And uh, as we said, uh, today, Laura Robson beat Venus Williams to set up a second-round match against Serena. How cool would that be to beat those two back-to-back? Big ask, though, isn't it? But Laura Robson loves the big occasion. Uh, I noticed she's now uh, disposed of her coach, Yelka Cryhan, and is now uh, being guided, certainly on a temporary basis, by the combination of Sven Grunewald, who works for the Adidas clothing label that uh, supports... uh, Laura Robson and there's that group isn't there Darren Cahill and and Sven Grunewald who work for the Adidas label and almost as a consultancy group help them out with their coaching and Sven's a good guy coached Greg Rosetsky for many years and also Lucy Arl is also travelling with uh, Laura Robson Lucy Arl somebody we all know well on the tennis circuit in Great Britain because she was a former player herself somebody who really stresses the work ethic in, in what she does as well but I think the difference is she makes it fun as well I think she's probably going to be quite a good match 
for Laura Robson, Lucy R. Certainly somebody that I would get on with, I think, if I was being coached by her. Except the only problem is I'm rubbish. She seems to be having a certain amount of input as well from, from Lisa Raymond, her new doubles partner. She's out there watching all of her matches and I assume also, you know, they're, they're talking post-match and you know, I don't think it's any kind of formal arrangement, but she's certainly having the benefit of her experience, which is not to be sniffed at, I would imagine. No, well, she's been around for a long time and, and as we saw... Uh, in Miami when they were doubles partners together there's certainly a good vibe between the two of them we heard that on the tennis podcast interviews shortly after Miami do listen to those if you want to hear Laura Robson and Lisa Raymond interviewed by us they were they were good fun well now I think it's time for our interview with David Felgate former coach of Tim Henman for many years back in the 1990s and the year 2000 before they finally split in 2001 David's somebody who's been around a long time we got on with him very well here on the tennis podcast and this was us speaking to him a couple of months ago would you say it's more appealing to you as a coach to get to work with somebody from this sort of age and be able to have an impact early on rather than have to take over somebody who's maybe already learned certain habits and, and that kind of thing well, yeah, I, I can see the upside of that. I think the other thing I wanted to do in working with Tim, I started with Tim when he was 17 and, and was nine years with him. So that's that's a long time, I think, in the coaching profession. And then worked with Xavier a little bit. And that didn't go on for a long time. Where there was a couple of periods where I worked with him. And one, I was going to stop coaching for a bit. I wanted to go and see, try and do something else, which I went into the management side of things for a couple of years. And then teamed up with him again. And unfortunately, he got injuries. But... Then I was worked with Nicole Vidasova for eight months, and it was a tough time. There were some some ups, and uh, what I what I took out of that as well is, yeah, it wasn't so much taking over uh, from what somebody else would done, but you need to put your heart and soul in it, and uh, you need to grow with a player. And it's hard to just get that connection. And I didn't want to again just try and get a job to go out on tour, as it were, to pay the bills and just work with any player. I wanted something substantial. And so I was very, when it came along with Donna, it started to work. I enjoy coaching and being out there. So I was very happy to step back and just go and do what it takes. It didn't, it didn't matter uh, to me, you know, what the hotels were, what the country was. It's about doing the job. You know, I've, it, when I was on the management side and subsequently setting up in the UK, we've spoken to some coaches and they I don't want to step down. I quite like staying in the nice hotels and, and traveling in the nice cars. And for me, that's not what it's about. It's, it's the pleasure of seeing your player develop and clearly what I've really got out of this with Donna. Uh, five years, all that travel. I mean, she was reasonably rated as a youngster, but I don't think people thought she'd be doing what she's doing. Is The pleasure you get just at the end of a match, you just sit for that moment's silence, that 30 seconds, for instance, when she won in Australia and it's all within. And you always think you're going to go up to people and say, told you so, told you so. You end up doing nothing. You just keep it within yourself and go back to the hotel and your first glass of wine just on your own it, that's what makes it worthwhile and then it's all over it's on to the next match next tournament um time to prove yourself again you mentioned nicole she she's a player who at a similar age to what donna is now was was a heck of a talent and and a lot expected of her maybe maybe too much too soon yeah i think she'd i mean i think i'm right in saying she'd won about three tournaments back to back at about a similar age so I was aware of her at the time, um, but yeah, most probably I think people were really talking her up as in terms of going to take over from these not next top girls. So that becomes very difficult, and that's about the people around you and you as a person understanding where you're actually at and continue to improve. And everybody reaches their goals at different times. Okay, Donna's 16 and in the top 100, but I, I guarantee you there's another 16-year-old out there who's going to do very well in a few years' time. Everybody's journey is different. Is, uh, is there a warning sign in there for you as a coach, having seen what happened to Nicole, who's now retired and, and retired at a very early age, really, for, for a tennis player? You know, we've talked about age eligibility and the amount of tournaments they're allowed to play and so forth. Do, are, you, are you very mindful of that and, and trying to get that balance right? I wouldn't say very mindful, but I'm just mindful whether it be, as I said, boy, girl, you know, whatever the age. I'm mindful of looking at the individual, when to give them a break, when to push them. Um, you've got to love, I think the one thing, you've really got to love the sport as well, not just love the winning. You've got to love the competing 
and sometimes competing means you don't win, and I think that's something we see in Nadal uh, you know, and Sharapova, I suppose, two leading lights in that area. They seem to love the battle. You can't win every battle, but if you're prepared to go out and battle and give a good performance, as I've tried to get across to Donna, perform, continue to perform in practice, then you're performing the matches, the wins will happen. So I'm aware of it, and age eligibility you know, stop some of that, although that can sometimes hinder as well because, uh, you know, when you've got a player that's keen and you want to play some tournaments, but it, but it's the rule, it's in place like uh, lots of other rules. You don't necessarily always agree with them, but it's the same for everybody, so get out there and absolutely, you know, deal with it. But, you know, while the passion and the hunger's in there, uh, she's going to be fine. But I'd say this with any player, I, I'd look for it as a coach when they lose. Is the passion and hunger still there? Do they love it? Do they want to get it out? back out there or do they just enjoy the winning and everything that goes with it yeah you you mentioned uh, the, the the age there i mean martina hingis was telling me a few weeks ago that she completely disagrees with that rule i mean she would she had her best results at, at that age you also mentioned that personalities is what what you look at and and you can't do it via gender and it does seem to me from the outside that nicole and donna say have got very different personalities donna appears t- to really enjoy this Absolutely, yeah. Good to hear that Martina disagrees. I think that's part of the family's job and the coach's job. That's where one likes to pit one's wits against other coaches out there and control the situation. And uh, for me, you've got a rule where it's limited on the WTA tour, yet she could now play loads of junior events. So she could actually play a lot more events if need be. So, uh, yeah, Donna embraces it. She loves it. You know, she wants the big occasion, the big limelight, and uh, but it's my job to keep her feet on the ground and she can have all the big occasions but you've got to do your work on the outside courts and actually earn the right to step out there on the big show take you back in time now i've just been interviewing uh ivan lendl uh who i believe you once played at wimbledon i did 1988 first round of wimbledon court one what do you remember about that I remember, I think he served first, and my first two returns, I, I whacked by him, and that was about as good as it got. Uh, I think, I can't remember the scores. Oh, was, was it 6-4, 6-1, something like that. You know, it was three straight sets. Um, I'd earned the right. I'd only got the wild card just before. I'd, I'd played pretty well. Used to be a pre-Wimbledon tournament called Beckenham, and Scott Davis was a top seed, and I'd beaten him, and I'd won a round at Queen's, and I was surprised and delighted to uh, be awarded that wild card. I'd played Wimbledon with some small success in doubles before and afterwards, but you know, to go out there. Uh I guess, you know, when when the draw comes out, you you want a match when you're at that stage of your career that you feel is is winnable or if you're not going to get one of them, you might as well go right to the top and the chance to uh play the top seed. So the way Wimbledon works, I knew in that day exactly when I was going to play because if you weren't defending champion but top seed, you're tending to be out first on court number one. So, yeah, I, I look back uh, with fond memories. I was looking at some photos the other day. I had a lot more hair and the shorts were a lot tighter in those <laughs> days. But uh, a lot of fun. I mean, sitting down with him just now, it, he's a bit intimidating even now to interview, you know, uh, as, as coach of Andy Murray. What was he like to, to get on the court with and actually shake hands with or, or have the coin flip with? Yeah, I, I didn't actually find that that intimidating because he he practiced with some of the British guys before as well Tony Roach uh, had had British players practicing with him and being in the locker room and around him he's a jovial character loved his jokes I mean not always everybody's idea of great taste his jokes but so I, I knew him on a friendly basis but was aware of him and so it wasn't like suddenly I'm going out there against you know Lendor and as you say he's intimidating I'd actually watched him play a lot so I must say, I mean, my, my tennis wasn't good enough, but I thoroughly you know, enjoyed performing and going out and trying to do my best. So then eventually you move on to coaching and you had quite a, quite a sort of, um, you ingratiated into it by Bill Knight, I think, weren't you? Well, yeah, I'd, um, I'd stopped playing. I'd moved to New York <coughs> and, excuse me, and I did some coaching just in an ordinary club kids housewives and I think that was a great grounding because I think coaching is it's the ability to get your message across so that was a good grounding and then I I took uh, a young team to the Orange Bowl which had Miles McLagan in and Andrew Richardson and then Richard Lewis was in charge of uh, national training then and I 
Richard had actually coached me a little bit and said, did I want the opportunity to work? And I did. I came back to the UK. And I first started down at Bisham Abbey uh, with Ian Barclay. Uh, there was a young James Bailey there and a few other players. And after six months, there became the opportunity. Bill Knight was head of men's then to do what I felt I would most probably be better at is uh, with young 16, 17, 18-year-olds who are starting out on the tour to try and get the best out of them, taking all the knowledge that I'd learnt from my own time and from other coaches who I'd been around. Um, and he gave me the opportunity and put four players together. They were actually, it's interesting, I, th- I think you most probably say they were the second group of four. Nick Brown was coaching the, the first group, which had Andrew Richardson in, uh, Andrew Foster Mark Schofield, and I had this group of four players, which included Barry Cowan, Nick Gould, Dan Sanders, and a very slim line, Tim Hemman. And to think back to that, I mean, you mentioned the name James Bailey there, who I remember won the Australian Open Juniors, and we had Jamie Delgado, who was an Orange Bowl winner, and I think he was a semi-finalist in that same Australian Open Junior tournament. They were the ones who were talked about, and, and Tim Henman came along, and he was kind of... He wasn't really on the radar at that sort of level, was he? I mean, it, he, he came along, I mean, he, he, he wasn't an obvious starlet. No, he wasn't. Uh, I, I, he'd been a good under-12 in the UK. He'd had some injuries. But I think, well, I know when I coach, and I, I can honestly say the same with Donna, it's, I don't sit there, can this player be a great player, can't they? And the job with the four boys that I had then was going to try and make them as good as they could be. And within that group, we travelled everywhere and it was Nick Gould who made the first moves up the rankings and but Tim was one thing about Tim he absolutely loved playing loved practicing you know he'd run through a brick wall for you you know really push those guys and he wasn't the obvious starlet but bit by bit he started to chip away he always used to get pretty good press in the telegraph because John Parsons uh, you know he knew everybody and they're both from the Oxford area so JP always gave him a little good press and uh, yeah, he just moved on through the ranks bit by bit. And I think what he shares with what we were talking about with Donna, for instance, earlier, is that love of the game. I mean, Tim was a real student of the game, wasn't he? He was always following the rankings. Following the rankings, following the players. I remember travelling with um, with the players to India, where Tim won all the tournaments, uh, satellite, but the Australian Open was being beamed in. He'd stay up at night, always watching it. Yeah, yeah absolutely loved it. Big wide eyes and was like, right, you know, you could see that he wanted to get out there and he wanted to perform on the big stage. And that's what he thoroughly enjoyed. How did he get to where he did, though, David? I mean, he was four in the world. He was, he was a Wimbledon semi-finalist numerous times. I mean, it's, it's still a heck of a jump, isn't it, from 17 with sort of, you know, maybe a future, maybe not, to where he got to. Yeah, when, when the team was first put together, which was 1992, I believe, uh, around Wimbledon time when we sat there with Bill Knight and put the team together, Tim lost first round of junior Wimbledon, I think 6-1, 6-love to a Mexican. <laughs> and yeah, the, the rest, as we know, is history. I, somebody, I used the word overachieve and somebody picked me up recently and said, you can't overachieve, you can only achieve you know, what you're meant to. Well, but if you can use the word, he by far superseded anything I think anybody could have ever expected from him. And in general, I think if you're to look the last 20 years of players, what, six Grand Slam semis, four in the world, uh, countless other titles with a game, yes, great hands, but, you know, not, nothing specially big in his game. And also in a period where the courts were beginning to be slowed up a little bit and the balls were becoming heavier uh, so you know we had semi-final of, of a uh, of Roland Garros in there as well so yeah I, incredible effort from him uh, how he chipped away and every year got better and, and better at it. I think the first time I remember really thinking cool this this guy has actually got a chance of being one of the top players in the world was when he beat Kafelnikov at, at Wimbledon first round wasn't it and um, and then he went on I think to the quarterfinals even that year. Yeah, that was the first year. Now, obviously, he was in on ranking then, and in terms of, you know, we're picking a schedule, but I guess that's really where, to the British public and I think to other people, okay, well, he could be a good player, but he's, you know, maybe this is a perennial top 20, top 10 player. Yeah, that Kafelnikov match where he was up and then came back and saved the match points. There old Bill Thrill for. I remember going back and listening to the commentary that evening. Yeah, and went on to the make the quarterfinals uh, in that year. Was that the year he lost to... Top Martin, a bit, lots of rain, and 
actually, I think he had a set point in the first set. And it's funny you look back on that because Todd then beat, oh, he lost to Mal Washington, who Tim had beaten the week before in Nottingham, if buts and maybes. But uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was really when one must say he came of age. But then he kind of ran into Sampras, the brick wall of Sampras, didn't he, in, in the the, in the, the years to follow. I, I remember in, in 97 he had a, a less successful tournament in, the, in that he didn't face Sampras. I think he, didn't he lose to Michael Stick that year? I think he might have done. His first two years, uh, quarterfinals against Todd, and then the second year was, was it not the quarterfinals as well? And he lost to Stick out on court one. Yeah. And it was the new year of court one. And it was certainly different. Tim had played a lot of matches on the... Uh, on centre court that year, and he he really didn't perform very well against Michael uh, that year. Uh, so yeah, that was a tough year. But then the what was it? The next two years, two semis against you know people talk about Tim. Oh, yeah. It's funny just when people don't know what I do, and then somebody will say, "Oh, I coached Tim Hem," and you know the, it's amazing how many times there'll be a negative comment. Oh, he didn't quite make it, did it? Oh, what was what was wrong with him? Why can't it's like well, lost to Sampras twice, lost to Leighton Hewitt, and he lost to Goran. You know that. that yeah. it wasn't like they were any of them bunny draws or any guarantees and everybody said oh yeah but he should have beaten Goram because of the rain everybody forgets the round before against Todd Martin where uh, I believe Todd Martin was was he two sets to one up and looking the better player that most probably then that w- the rain on and bad light stopped play which was that was a huge advantage to him then because for Todd's body but yeah he, he came up against Sampras I think and Sampras at his best Arguably. Uh, yeah, and in the second, a very windy day, the second semi-final, Tim won the first set. And I think it was 3 all in the second set, break point, Tim. I still swear to this day it was a double fault by Sampras, <laughs> but we didn't have Hawkeye then, so, you know, we don't know. Uh, but, yeah, Sampras at his best, and, and Hewitt really at his best there. And so, you know, his record was phenomenal. And then even in another year, was it the last, I think the last year that I was with Tim, I, he lost in the last 16 and actually worked where it worked against him that year is where the Wimbledon committee choose to move the seedings around in the way it was, and they moved it such. They actually came up against Mark Philippoussis, you know, another great grass court player. I think that was a long fifth set match with a shank over the top of his head, did the damage in the end. So his record there, and, and even after I finished working with him, you know, some of the matches he won that he had no right to win when he... Cratcherville on, on court one and you know he, he just had an amazing ability to pull a lot of matches out deep into his career yeah people always used to sort of say oh you know Tim he always sends us on a white knuckle ride doesn't he but what he was actually doing is pulling out victories against extraordinary players like I remember the one against Jim Courier as well Jim Courier and Paul Haas and people say oh you, you have to get behind your sofa to watch it it's like he's beating world class players here winning in exciting matches it, it, it just depends which way you're looking uh, at, you know, looking at it, but I, uh, I mean, was it nerve-wracking watching? I mean, y- you control your, your emotions, but just great times. I mean, to look back, you know, privileged to have sat on that sense court and watched some of those matches. You mentioned nerves. What is it like sitting there in your role? I mean, are you, are you, you know, we, we look at Lendl, and I was talking to to Bob Brett the other day. You don't see a flicker of emotion from them during matches. You do show a little bit more. You seem to engage a little bit more with your with your player. What what's going through your head? Yeah, I think I show a little more, but I've tried always not to. I mean, I, I talked a lot to Tony Pickard throughout my career and and Bob Brett and see how they sit and watch. So sometimes I will show a little more emotion. I, I think when the players were younger, uh, I, I'll show the emotion of ups if I'm not happy with them in terms of putting them on, but. I never really know what emotion I'm going to feel internally until just before the match. Sometimes when you think it's the biggest match, you just sit down there as calm as can be. And I, I feel sometimes when I feel that the player's done everything they can, they're going out and you know they're going to perform, it's like, okay, well, let's just sit back. Um, but the main emotion I, I have on it, I'm watching to see how I can make them better, what will need to be done on the practice court, because that's the main thing that I'm there for. If you get too caught up in the match, you become a fan. And you ball watch. And, of course, sometimes you, you, you're on the edge of your seat and you really want them to win one particular point. But you can't get involved. You know, I don't get emotive about line calls that go against or, or go for them. Just maybe tend to be a, a nod of the head. Uh, in the women's side, they have the coaching rule on court. I don't go on court. Never have done. Never. 
told Donna, I mean, even, you know, set her up for this a couple of years ago. I said, if you ever get there, I won't be going on the court, I can assure you. I don't agree with the rule. Uh, maybe if it was in the slams, then maybe I would. But you see, I've seen lots of players as well. I do a little bit of commentary with you guys and done a little bit for TV and I see players, you know, doing well in the tournaments leading up to it. And then it comes to the slam and they're looking over and, it, you know, what are they going, what are they going to do? The coach can't come on. I think it's far greater, especially as well, for a young player to try and figure it out themselves. You know, that, that's what it's all about. That's the beauty of our sport. So that's another rule that I don't agree with. And so that's why you'll never see me out there with uh, Donna. Absolutely fascinating to, to, to hear, hear that side of things from a coach's perspective. In April 2001, I remember being in Estoril in Portugal when news came through that, that you and Tim were not going to be working together anymore. I mean, you'd been together for a long time. What, what, what was that like? It was eight, well, I guess it was eight and a half years that we'd been together. Well, it was strange being at home. I, I'd missed a few tournaments, you know, watching the, watching the scoreline. Um, it was most probably the right time uh, in all honesty. I mean, maybe could have seen one more French and Wimbledon through just to see, you know, what would happen. I think one of the difficulties became, and I understand it having been on both sides, I don't think people were appreciating enough how well he was actually doing and it chips away at you as a person as well if you're constantly, when you go into the uh, media and press or people are asking, oh, when are you going to change your coach or what are you going to do? And, you know, you're only five in the world. And, and so I, I think there's that side of it. But one, what one must admire about Tim as well is he's going to leave no stone unturned and he's a loyal guy, but at the same time it's like, okay, I, I've got to see, you know, if there is something else out there that I can, you know, will or can make a difference. So, yeah, once that happened, I just I wasn't sure what I wanted to do because, as I said earlier, it was like, did I want to just go out there and coach or did I want – I didn't know. And I was young well, – still reasonably young, aren't I? But most probably a little too rash in some of the decisions that one makes and learns. And I, I decided, right, I've had enough of this tennis. I'm not going to have that happen again. And you put your heart and soul into something. I'm going to get into the management side. And there was an opportunity to go and do that, but not to the end of the year. And then somebody said to me, well, would you help out Savi and Melissa? And I got out there and really enjoyed working with him and enjoyed the person. And it went incredibly well because when he started, he was about 80. And I think at the end of that year, he got to 20. The worst moment of that year was clearly when he had to play Tim at the US Open because, you know, cameras on you, people you know, building it up more than yourself. And, you know, oh, will you tell him how to beat him and how to beat him I'll, I'll prepare him for the match and you know now I'm in his camp of course I want him to win so, but it was a bit of a when Tim actually won I think Tim was two sets to one up I might mean two sets to love up but Xavier performing very well the moment the match finished it, it felt quite hollow it, it, it didn't feel right you know delighted for Xavier on one hand and then knowing what Tim was going to have to go through you know, to go into the press and answer the questions, uh, not not a great feeling. And so just after the US Open, I finished with Xavier, as I always told him I would do, and went off into the management world. And in between those two times, I remember Tim obviously reached the semis of Wimbledon, which is arguably the closest he probably ever came to, to, to get into the final and winning the tournament. And you were in our commentary box, I believe, for, for Five Live. What, what was that like? Yeah, so that was the first... That was the first year, wasn't it? And um, I think it was Ian Carter approached me about doing some work. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, and um, the first thing I said is, oh, I'm not going to do Tim's matches. I don't want to. don't think it's right. And I don't think Tim knew uh, that I was doing it. And then I think he played Martin Lee in the second round. And somebody said, come on, just, you know, easy match, do it. And I did it. And I... And Tim looked up and he saw me there. And I think he was, a bit, I found this out subsequently. You know, he was a bit surprised that I was doing it. But it, it felt good. I, I, when he had those certain points in the Goran match, you know, I can remember I was up and down and out the chair. I was trying to, you know, being told how to commentate and had the team there. And it's like, but I, I'm finding this difficult because I'm, I'm half fan, half know what he's going through. I, I'm, I'm really pleased that I had the opportunity to do it because I would have watched it on TV, but not with the same intent. But I sat through every single point, every rain delay, 
did the whole gambit. And so it was really, it was good for me, uh, I feel, from that perspective. It was quite, I mean, I was a listener at that time. It was before I joined the Five Live team. I joined the next year. Yeah. And, but I remember being, I think I was uh, in another country listening through the internet. And I, and I found it quite emotional, no, yeah. knowing you a little bit, knowing him a little bit, and being obviously aware of the situation, you could hear your emotion, really. Oh, I definitely had emotion. And cool tears in the eyes or whatever you know I did you know the ups and downs I think I was doing it with Richard Evans and Ian Carter doing the sets and I was doing it with Fru McMillan as well I think so that was the that was the team yeah there was absolute emotion I didn't know you asked earlier how you're going to be in a match I didn't know how I was going to how I was going to be that day um and yeah there was great emotion coming back and forwards on it um and and yeah it wasn't well wasn't meant to be but he'd beaten him all those times before but you have to take your head hat off to uh, Goran. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.